Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about venture capital, where investors and founders alike can learn how VCs make decisions and reach conviction. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Billy Ilchev joins us today from San Francisco. He's a partner at Two Sigma Ventures, an early stage venture fund investing in data and engineering to create the future. Prior to Two Sigma Ventures, he was a general partner at August Capital, member of the leadership teams at Box and LifeLock, and vice president at Salesforce. Billy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. So I, you know, I did a very high level of your background, but can you talk us through your path to venture? Uh, sure. My path to venture is, um, for the most part, an accident. And really, when when somebody reaches out and asks me how they can pursue the same career path as I did, I tell them, don't. Because even if I had to try to replicate where I ended up, I couldn't do it myself. So long way of saying, you know, I think... As you go through your career, be prepared for different things and keep an open mind and learn and build skills. But um, my philosophy, at least, is don't be too, I guess, prescriptive about where the path may lead uh, because you never know. It, it may surprise you. So I started my career, uh, and the reason I came to Silicon Valley is uh, nobody wanted to hire me except for the investment banks coming out of business school. It was right after the, um, the dot-com had burst. And um, the only opportunities I had available to me were in, in investment banking. And But I didn't want to go to New York. And so fortunately, uh, Merrill Lynch asked me to come to California and uh, do technology. And that's how I came here to the Bay Area in 2004, I did investment banking for a few years, which was a good experience, but very quickly I realized it's just not what I want to do career, career-wise. And um, after, in the spring of 2008, before the financial crisis, I called my two best clients. One of them was HP, one of them was Salesforce. And Salesforce at the time was a very small company and HP was a very large and successful company at the time. And so... Uh, Salesforce said, we don't really have a role for you. You're going to be bored. And HP said, we'd love to have you. So I ended up at HP. I was there briefly for a year, basically running strategy for the enterprise hardware business. And then uh, about 12 or 15 months later, Salesforce reached out again and said, we think we're ready to get more active, more strategic, take advantage of the opportunities around us. We need somebody to help us kind of put together a, a strategy, core dev function, and so I joined Salesforce in 2009, uh, which at the time wasn't obvious. Now it's obvious, of course, because Salesforce is the largest enterprise software company today. But at the time, it was a relatively small company. 
Um, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And so I had a tremendous experience there. I learned a lot. You know, Salesforce was a very relevant and is a very relevant company today. Right place, right time, right CEO. We're very active on the investing fund. We had incredible access to founders who wanted to uh, be associated with Salesforce because the credibility it brought to the table. Um, we acquired a lot of really interesting companies that I was involved with. Um, and after Salesforce, I had a couple of more kind of leadership operating roles at a company called LifeLock and after that, uh, Box. Uh, and then about four and a half years ago, five years ago, um, you know, out of a few random conversations, uh, I started getting recruited by a couple of venture capital firms. Um, that was not something I was actively pursuing. Uh, it really kind of happened. And uh, long story short, I joined August Capital in uh, early 2016, and that was a great experience. And uh, then uh, last year, I uh, joined Two Sigma Ventures, uh, which is a younger uh, VC firm that started in New York. And, and now I'm growing our presence in, in California, in San Francisco. Very good. Well, I want to talk about Two Sigma. Um, do, were you doing corp dev at Salesforce? I was. I was. I mean, my job was fairly broad at the time in that inside corp dev, we had the, um, the investment arm of Salesforce, what is now Salesforce Ventures. And so in addition to the typical corp dev strategy and M&A work, we also did a lot of investing work. And we invested in uh, all kinds of amazing companies from DocuSign to Box, Dropbox, Evernote, Twilio, MuleSoft, HubSpot, you know. No uh, shit. Wow. Gusto, Zapier, you name it. Like we, we had the ability to uh, invest in anything. We just had better access than really any venture capital firm because what we brought to the table again was we weren't threatening we were uh, pretty st straight up in how we engaged with founders and, um, and, and there were a lot of benefits to uh, startups to taking some money from Salesforce uh, because of the influence and, and, and reach Salesforce had in the ecosystem and credibility. So, Vili, what is the thesis at Two Sigma? The thesis is that just like any other industry, uh, data uh, can be used and leveraged to improve your business process and inform decisions. And I think a lot of VC firms uh, have talked to some extent about this, but nobody really does anything of substance uh, leveraging data. And Two Sigma, which started out as a, as a technology-enabled hedge fund, and, and what I mean by that is truly a world-class data science shop. Oh, 300 PhDs, about 600 software engineers. They were truly extraordinary in their uh, data science and big data capabilities and built a very large business. You know, Two Sigma Ventures kind of came out of that culture as a sister organization uh, that is very much inspired by their success, which is how can you use data to change uh, venture capital? Now, at the very early stage, I think most of the data we're using is to help us with workflow. So 
turns out everybody talks about ventures and either in a haystack, which is kind of true, but not really. When you think about it, there are about 4,000 uh, seed deals that happen per year in software uh, or less, actually. That's overall. You know, about 2,000 of them are software deals, deals that I would consider within scope of our interest. Um, and then the question is, how do you process that? How do you identify it? How do you touch it? How do you assess it? How do you uh, then put it through some sort of a workflow to assess whether that's something you want to consider investing in? How do you track it? And that's when you have a team of 10 people, that's really 200 companies per year. That's like one a day. That is not an insurmountable challenge, right? It is about workflow. It's about how do you process that in a systematic way. Now, that's not to say data cannot inform our decision-making. For sure, I would say there are lots of untapped data sources that we can be leveraging, including like open source, for example. There's so much out there about projects and, you know, when something is taking off and getting adopted and who's behind it and what companies are using it. All that is public information, you know, so there is definitely an opportunity for us to be leveraging data to make decision make decisions as well. But at least initially, we've built an application. It sucks all the data that's out there on startups, and it basically distributes it to the team, puts it through a workflow, make sure we uh, process it. And of course, over time, we want to graduate and want to uh, broaden the scope of what we do, uh, expand the capital we manage at which time I think there's going to be more and more opportunity to leverage data. How, how many different partners at Two Sigma on the venture there side? Are, there are a total of four partners. Uh, there are three partners that are on the investing side. And one of my partners basically runs the operations of the firm and uh, what we call portfolio success, which is all the resources we have that we try to make available to our companies. Many folks have come on the program and talked about pattern recognition. And there's been some thoughts about whether VC is an apprenticeship business or or it's not, it can't be taught. You know, how do you think about the team at Two Sigma and, you know, does that group attend? Do they all meet with companies and do some assessment and kind of surface the best ones? And, you know, how do you make sure that sort of the the ideals and the the critical things that that need to be assessed and 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 are valued at Two Sigma? you know, are, are embraced by the entire team? Yeah, I mean, I think, of course, pattern matching is very important to, uh, to, to venture. That instinct of like what makes something special is really hard to describe. It's really hard to teach. And, and you can only do it by just seeing it a lot. And of course, the thing about venture too is to every pa- pattern, there's the exception. So... <laughs> So, you know, it, it's really hard. There are generalizations in which you can fit things, but you always have to room leave uh, the door open that this one may be an exception. And so I think trying to rely just on your top three or five pattern matchers, the partners, the people that have the most experience, will never allow you to scale. That's the problem with the boutique venture model is it's like five guys and their relationships. And it's literally guys. And 
you know, they source because they're well-networked and very smart and very experienced in their relationships. Well, yeah, that may be true. It's just you're looking at a tiny subset of the opportunity that are, the opportunities that are out there. And so it just doesn't scale. And so we are much more inspired by what Andreessen is doing, what uh, Insight is doing, what Sequoia is doing, which is we aspire to touch every opportunity out there um, and have an opportunity to render uh, an opinion on it, uh, to have a point of view. You know, we may not get them all right. We may not win them all. But if we don't see them, there is no decision to be made. And therefore, we very much believe that, you know, meeting with companies, sourcing, processing, it's a team sport. Everybody needs to do it. And we need to hire people who have that instinct and can grow over time to uh, lead deals and uh, have the experience to support and mentor and um, founders and, and sit on boards. So if I've heard about this, uh, this proprietary tool that you use called George, and I'm not sure if that's something you talk about publicly, but I have to ask you, you know, what, what is George? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I don't know how you heard about it. I don't know if it's on our website, but um, it is an application we have built. It, it's, uh, we have uh, two and a half data scientists uh, working on it full time. And what it does is it basically sucks all startup data from everywhere, all public and proprietary databases out there. It looks at the investors who they are, who the team is. It looks up LinkedIn data. It looks at blog data. It looks at uh, investor data. And we score the credibility of those investors and um, and basically tries to surface those in a systematic way so that I can look at something, say, here's all the information. It's basically what would take me probably half an hour to research becomes available in a dashboard immediately. I can quickly assess, is this a company I want to meet with or not? If so, I can create a lead uh, in our CRM. I can, from the tool, reach out to the founder and say, hey, Nick, I just saw your company. I noticed it. It looks very interesting. Would love to connect. Would love to connect. And so it basically allows me to process that within minutes. Uh, within seconds, actually. And so that tool is getting more and more intelligent as we put more and more data into it, uh, as it recognizes the things I like and I don't like. It sorts the opportunities by uh, based on how I've behaved and interacted with it in the past. And so our goal, again, is to make sure that uh, it knows what I'm interested in. It knows the people I care about and want to invest with. Um, and, uh, it surfaces the right opportunities in front of me. So I don't have to manually go look at databases or talk to every single of my VC friends, what companies are in your portfolio. It just happens automatically. That's not to say relationships don't matter. Relationships are very important. And I probably rely to this day, mostly on relationships 
you know, which is, which is a good problem to have. I, you know, there are lots of people that are very helpful to me in the industry. I want to see me be successful and I'm very grateful for it. Um, but if you're just starting in the business or you're a little, your principal and associate, uh, it gives you a, a very structured way of sourcing and finding great opportunities. Well, it reminds me like we're, uh, we haven't launched a fundraise yet, but we're thinking about launching a fundraise for ourselves soon. And there's two ways to do that, right? You talk to people and other GPs say, hey, you know, we've got some LPs that are a good fit and that's great. But you can also look at what are the landscape of LPs out there that invest in emerging funds of your approximate size. And then you at least know, you know, here are the here's where we should be aimed. Here are the folks that, you know, are a good idea to get in touch with and of course, there's always some serendipity in the former, but uh, important to do the latter as well. Yep, uh, that's right. I mean, George is a huge differentiator for us. Nobody else has anything like it. Everybody talks about it. Uh, it's got the UI. It's it it looks it looks the way I would describe it is it looks like a very proprietary version of Affinity. I would I would argue that uh, in a couple of years, if we want to make a business out of it, I sell it to venture firms. I bet I can get half of venture firms to buy it. Um, it's just a really it's a great application we've built. Give me an example of a company and some of those characteristics or some of those things that would jump out at you as this is interesting. This is something I should probably take a deeper look. Yeah, I mean, for example, it would know it, it would know that I'm looking at uh, Dev Tools. It will know that I've looked at two similar companies in the past, and I've connected with all the founders, and it sees my emails and all that stuff. You will see that pick an investor I really like. Let's say I'll give a shout out to my friends at Bloomberg Beta. It knows I track Bloomberg very closely. It knows I want to see all their companies. You know, it's an API. I've done two deals uh, that are, you know, API first companies, and it will just surface it. And you'll say, raised 2.5 million, you know, six months ago from these set of investors. You track all these investors. LinkedIn data would suggest this type of traction. Here's here are a few data points that may be a bit proprietary that uh, would indicate you should connect with this company. And I'll take a look. I'll say, yep, I like it. Create a lead, email the founder, you know, uh, connect. So aside from disposition of the founders, what, what do you think is George's biggest blind spot? Um, George's biggest blind spot is, it's a really good question. Um, it, it, we haven't invested enough yet in like, analytics around founder profile. What does a great founder look like? And there are a lot of things there you can do with data from degrees to universities, to networks, to all that stuff. It doesn't really understand the relationship between when a seed round was done and how time changes the probability of that company being exciting or successful, for example. So if a seed round occurred more than two and a half years ago and the company hasn't raised capital yet, it's probably not going well. So even though you may have 
bunch of great seed investors on the cap table. It's probably not exciting, but that's okay. I can quickly ascertain that again myself and and just dismiss it. Doesn't really fully understand relationships between funds and people as well yet. So yeah, I like Felices as an investor, but what other data points can you infer that are public that would suggest whether this is something that is a significant investment for Felices or not, whether it is something there, it looks like um, is exciting for them or not. Like, I don't know. It, there's so much data out there. Again, like, is anybody at Felices promoting this company on Twitter or other places, or is it forgotten? Um, and so I, I just think there's a lot of these relationships and nuance that we can continue to improve the algorithm on. It's just not a priority right now. The priority, again, is we're not dealing with an infinite number of opportunities. The opportunities number is, I don't know, 2,500 to 4,000 per year. Pretty reasonable. That's not that much. Yeah. We can process that. The question is, do you, can you do it in a systematic way? Or is everybody like calling on the same company and doing the same thing? So... I'm sure we can geek out on George all day long, but there's a point of diminishing returns. Sure. Yeah, it, it makes me smile thinking, you know, about companies that you and I have spoken about. I can just imagine you typing it into George and checking it out. But uh, yeah. um, so let's say George has identified a company. It's interesting for you, right? It becomes a lead. Uh, walk us through, you know, you're engaging with this company. What is your thought process? And can you give us some clarity on your decision framework when you're looking at at an investment yeah i mean i i think here i'm not that differentiated or unique uh, i probably look and behave like most vcs um i you know i try to connect with the founder oftentimes founders would say something or sometimes they would say hey we're not raising right now my my response back is like i'm not investing right now i'm just trying to meet you dude like or 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 lady, like, I just want to get to know you. Um, I think venture is, trust is really important um, in, 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 in the consideration for what and who you should invest in. And so I do try to get to know founders. Um, I think the same thing applies to founders too. I try to advise people that the top three considerations for the Series, in, series A investor should be trust. And it's really hard to do that in the midst of a fundraising process, which is to say, I tend to tell people, don't waste your time talking to a bunch of VCs. But at the same time, if you're meeting a VC during your fundraising process, you're doing it wrong. right? So there's this middle ground where it's important to get to know people. So I try to get to know them, learn about their company, where they're going. Rarely is that like right at the time they're thinking about fundraising or that I would be ready to invest in. And so it becomes part of a, you know, workflow, part of a conversation and getting to know each other where first meeting with a founder happens, I get to know the company. There may be another conversation in one, two, three months to kind of see their progress, see what they're doing. And at some point, either I would suggest like, hey, I think you have made enough progress where um, you should consider raising capital now. 
Uh, or the founder may say like, hey, I think I'm ready to raise capital. Either way, that would be the right time for me to engage. I usually try to bring another one of my colleagues or partners to the next meeting to get some feedback and uh, get another point of view. And, uh, you know, and then from that point, it's, it's, it's a matter of days for us to complete our work and make a decision. Obviously, you need to come and kind of present to the whole firm on, on Monday or Thursday, whatever it may be. But my philosophy is that great firms make decisions very quickly. And they do that not by cutting corners, but rather by coming together and doing a lot of work in a very short period of time together as a team and render a decision. And so my philosophy, again, is you can, the initial process may be months, if not years in some cases, just tracking people. But the minute you kind of decide to engage, um, you have a week maybe to to get your work done and make a decision. And I find that to be manageable and sufficient. We don't always have the benefit of time when getting to know founders. You know, sometimes you'll meet a founder they're in the midst of a round or maybe they weren't in the midst of a round, but they've received a term sheet. Things are coming together. You got to make a quick decision. Um, and so, you know, you pull the trigger. Uh, what I'm curious from you, Vili, is, you know, how long after investing in or, or working with a company do you tend to know whether it's going to work or not? I mean, the joke in the business is wait until your first board meeting. Then, you know, if you really got it right or not. Uh, the reality is you kind of never know, you know, things come from the dead and become spectacular successes and things that are spectacular successes turn into, into um, failed startups. So you just never know, you know, our goal is to support founders through the good times and the bad don't get too high when things are going well. Don't get too low when things are going uh, bad. I view my role as to be the counterbalance to founder, uh, to pick them up when they are down and, you know, bring some humility and reality when they're running too hot. And so, but you, you never know until, you know, the company goes through a liquidity event, ultimately how it's going to turn out. So, you know which who's executing well and who's not. So that you know, but you have great teams that struggle for a long time before they figure it out. And um, so, I, th- I think I think it, patience and, and 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 just being solid and stable and supportive is really important because you just never know. And it also speak to speaks to the fact that in venture, the the ones that work way more than compensate for uh, the ones where you you were too patient, but you ended up losing money on, uh, which is to say external factors in our business may force us to seek liquidity so we can raise more capital, whatever it may be, show success. But in reality, the best business model for VC is to never sell uh, and just be there forever because for those that actually work, uh, it way more than compensates on the upside, uh, the ones that you held on too long. So I think 
being supportive and there is the right mindset. Vili, at, at the point of investment, do you attempt to assess or handicap execution risk versus technical risk versus commercial risk? I do. I think about that trade-off. It varies by stage a lot. Uh, it varies by type of startup, by uh, the market, et cetera. I even wrote a blog post about it. But yeah, there's a trade-off between what type of risk and how much of it you're willing to take. Uh, the more traditional the startup, the more uh, competitive the market, the more startups in the space, the more incumbents in the space, the more well understood the market is, the more established the market is, the more the more uh, execution matters. It's not about like innovation in that market. It's about execution. There's plenty of competition. And so, you know, the bar there on the execution front is extremely high for me. Uh, think about like an HR recruiting app. Like, you'd better be amazing. <laughs> Invest in the HR recruiting app. It better be amazing execution. Uh, but there's some things that are very innovative, very different, disruptive, orthogonal, like there's not competitor, there are no metrics. And for those things, I may be willing to take on a lot, a lot more risk. Team matters, of course. And so with every deal, there's this mix of risk you're taking and you're trying to get comfortable with that mix, the, the team risk the market risk, the execution risk, the technology risk. There are lots of risk. It's present in all startups. The question is what combination is the right mix for a particular investment? You know, Vili, uh, capital is is a commodity. And largely speaking, there doesn't appear at least to be a ton of differentiation in venture. There are certainly some firms that are doing things differently, but uh, on the surface, not a, not a ton of difference. Um, how do you combat sort of the commoditization of venture? That's a really good question. Um, and this is largely why I joined Two Sigma Ventures. Um, I had an opportunity to join more traditional boutique-like firms. And the insight I had was the same you articulated, which is venture is commoditizing. And so the way to win in venture therefore becomes uh, a, a systems workflow and data problem, just like any other business. And I wanted to go to a place that has that mindset of how do you build systems workflow and network to allow you to win. I do think having said that, experience, track record, stars, if you will, matter in venture, uh, especially at the early stage. The person is at least, if not more important than the firm you end up working with. And so there are firms that have taken this to the extreme where the individual is irrelevant, right? They view the brand of the firm, their process as the key, you know, go to market, you know, uh, focus. And, and I think that's, that's taken it too far. So I do think my personal experience, how I treat and engage with founders, how I support them, how I work with them, you know, all of that matters. The traditional boutique 
partner mindset matters. But my view is that's not enough. And so I think in this new world, you're going to need to be exceptional at managing a funnel, at sourcing, and have excellent people to support these companies because that is ultimately how you win. So there's the sourcing, there's seeing it part, and there's the, there's the winning part. And the winning part is a function of many things, but in, including included in, in those criteria are your brand, your reputation, your experience, your track record, the things you've done. Are, are the folks at Two Sigma, like yourself, that are making investments also the folks that sit on the boards and, and work with the companies, or are they different people? No, they're, they're the same people. So in this in this way, we're fairly traditional, where the investing partners are the ones sitting on boards. Um, I've never quite appreciated the wisdom of board partners. I've had some really good experience working with a few of those people in other firms. Um, thinking, for example, somebody like Bruce Armstrong at Coastler, who's fantastic. But... I think that makes sense more for uh, growth funds than it does for early stage funds. Again, the product at the early stage is really the experience, insight, personality, and credibility of of the the investing partner you're going to work with. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers, constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. Billy, I want to talk a bit about exit environment and some changes going on there. Of course, we've got SPACs and direct listings and been lots of news, lots of new SPACs formed, lots of uh, big names, you know, trying to do some, trying to make some moves in uh, the late stage environment and the exit environment. You know, just to kick off, I'm curious, aside from the bankers, who do you think stands to lose the most from the increase in in these SPACs and, and direct listings? By the way, I do not think the bankers are losing in any way. In fact, they're double tapping from the gate. They are making their fee on the listing. And I don't know if you've looked at those uh, SPAC deals. Everyone is a $50, $60 million fee for advisors on both sides for doing very little. So the SPAC thing is not taking anything away from the bankers. To the contrary, I bet they are just 
giddy as giddy as they can be. Interesting. And by the way, while we're on the topic, IPOs were never a good uh, business for the banks. So everybody's like talking about how the banks are making so much money IPOs. It never, it's their least profitable product, if you will, at the investment banks. Um, it's, it's their loss leader so that you can build a relationship and then make money on follow-ons and converts and M&A afterwards. But set that aside, uh, I mean, the SPAC thing is very interesting and we'll see how it plays out. I think it's great. It's a great innovation. I think the IPO markets to some extent are strange. They're inefficient, uh, in some ways, uh, I'm not the type that really believes in these IPO windows. I don't believe in IPO windows. I think you can take a company public at any time. I do think the appetite for risk changes and therefore the valuations change, which is what I think people really mean when they talk about IPO windows is sometimes you just can't get the valuation you're looking for. And today in this environment with SPACs, it seems like that is a good hack for you at least initially to get a much better valuation for an asset that is either too early or too weird for the public markets to take, to absorb through the traditional IPO path. And so if you've noticed about these SPAC deals, every single one of them is not a traditional IPO story. Like you can't tell it it's too early sometimes or too weird, something is off. The question is, in a year or two or three, how these perform and like, therefore, whether investors are willing to continue to back these types of deals. I can tell you today, one of the reasons I believe the SPACs are an interesting proposition for investors is with cost of capital being zero, you know, you may as well park it in a SPAC and that gives you then the option to make a decision at some point in the future on whether you want to participate in the deal. Not a bad deal. Seems like a reasonable arrangement for a hedge fund. Uh, because as you know, like you can choose not to participate in the deal, even though you've invested in the SPAC and you get your money back, basically. Uh, or sell your shares. I'm not sure how it works. But either way, I think I think the current, you know, uh, Growth in SPACs has many uh, drivers behind it. One of them is just the interest rate environment, I, I think. But we'll see, where it, they're not new, right? They've been around for a long time. You know, the question is what's driving the current growth in the number of SPACs? And, and we'll see, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head just like everybody else a little bit. But to some extent, it also makes sense. It's just so much more efficient uh, to take some of these companies public through a SPAC than try to go through uh, the IPO process, which takes six months, spend a ton of money and time, and uh, tell a tough story usually. These things tend to be tough stories. And the reason the SPAC is much better is it's the SPAC sponsor and the existing shareholders who are then on the other side, your shareholders, you don't need to sell a whole lot of people. These PAC investors are the people that need to be sold, but much uh, much easier to do than uh, through a traditional IPO process. And, and direct direct listings, I, you know, I know. I, I think the direct listings thing makes too much sense. I'm surprised 
it's taken this long, <laughs> yeah. especially now that the New York Stock Exchange has made it possible to raise primary capital through a direct listing. The idea of price discovery in the traditional IPO way versus like a market way doesn't make sense. Like, just like at 8.30 in the morning on an IPO day, the underwriters, you know, and, and, and the New York Stock Exchange takes a bunch of orders, buy and sell, and determines the opening price. There's no reason why that same process could not and should not be used for uh, the actual pricing of the IPO the night before. So I think, in my view, that's we've seen that coming for a long time, but I have to believe we're finally here and that's just the future. I'm not sure exactly you know, when you uh, emigrated to the States, but I don't think you were born here. Um, you're an immigrant. Uh, what, what's your take on sort of the state of tech here in the states? And do you think, do you think a decade from now the U.S. is still the best country to start a tech company? I think the U.S. has a lot going for it uh, on the technology front. We have incredible uh, network of universities. Uh, you have, and, and we can talk about politics too, but at least historically, the United States has been this aspirational, extraordinary place where a bunch of random people from any place in the world can come to and, and succeed and build a career, uh, which has attracted incredible, incredibly talented people. Uh, we have the the design and cre creative culture in the United States has, which has spawned many uh, consumer businesses. We have the capital financing infrastructure to uh, build these types of companies. And so I'm still very bullish on the United States in the long run as the uh, epicenter of technology in the world. Having said that, just like we talked about venture capital commoditizing, so is technology and so is talent and and um you know and the rest of the world is you know uh catching up and so i do think here's what i would say i do think that it's not to say that the u.s declines in their prominence as a tech leader i do think that the rest of the world rises faster simply catching up to the u.s um, I think Europe continues to have challenges culturally and uh, and also, at least on the enterprise side, it's a much more fragmented market. Uh, China is obviously an incredible force to be reckoned with. So I don't think it's a winner-take-all. I don't think they're losers here. I think everybody will benefit by growth in technology globally. And I think the U.S. will, be, will continue to be the leader short of some of, of shooting ourselves in the foot politically here, you know, just a few days ago, I noticed the administration is really trying to make it very difficult for uh, H-1B uh, visas to be obtained. I came to the United States as a student, but stayed because of an H-1B visa. I would have never, uh, I probably wouldn't be able to be here if I was graduating today uh, from the United States, which means 
would have probably gone to Canada or somewhere in Europe, the UK, Australia to build my career. And I think what 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 make what will continue to ensure that we are the leader in innovation in the world is being able to attract the most talented people in the world. Um, and and so to the extent we fail to do so, it will be self-imposed. It will be uh, politics and stupidity, not something that, uh, not not anything due to a competitive disadvantage that we may have. Vili, what do you know you need to get better at? Uh, quite a few things. Um, I need to get better at tracking companies and founders. I'd like to be more organized. I'd like to get better at sleep. Uh, about half of the time, I find, especially in the Zoom world now, I find myself too tired to to engage in the best and most productive way. And um, and when you're too tired, your memory suffers and you are less productive. So I, I just need to do a better job with that. I do a pretty good job staying healthy and fit. I don't do a good job getting rest. Um, and so I need to get better with that. I'll get you a whoop, uh, Billy. I have a whoop. <laughs> I know. You're an investor, yeah? We're an investor. Yeah. Uh, so um, we're very excited about whoop. And whoop has helped me, but I still feel like there's a long way for me to go. I mean, I can get better in just about every dimension, leadership and, you know, um, follow through my reputation. But yeah, it's it's a never ending journey on on getting better. And I don't think I am... I've achieved, uh, uh, you know, any sort of, I'm, I'm not great in any dimension. So lots of room for improvement. All of us. And then finally, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Oh, just send me an email. Look me up on Twitter. It's very easy. My email is Vilia Two Sigma Ventures. You can reach me at Vilia Two Sigma as well. Twitter is easy. Do not send me a LinkedIn email. Please. <laughs> I can't keep track of those. They're so noisy. I just send me an email. If it's in my inbox, I'll get back to you. If you send me an email, I may see it. I may not. Well, Billy, this was a real pleasure. I, I learned a lot in uh, you know the short time we've known each other and, and certainly today as well. So thanks for making the time. Thank you for having me. It was fun. I appreciate it. All right, that'll wrap up today's interview. If you enjoyed the episode or a previous one, let the guest know about it. Share your thoughts on social or shoot them an email. Let them know what particularly resonated with you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that some of the smartest folks in venture are willing to take the time and share their insights with us. If you feel the same, a compliment goes a long way. Okay, that's a wrap for today. Until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks so much for listening.